0: Right. If you've listened to any of my previous episodes of Developers Eating the World, you'll know that one of the things that I emphasize is industry terminology. And I think it's really important for everybody to challenge themselves on terms that they throw out there, because how you use terminology, how you explain it matters a lot. It matters in terms of collaboration, and it matters in terms of also getting the broader market to understand and adopt technology. So recently, I wrote an article on a term called resilience engineering. When the article was published, it was August 21st on DevOps.com, and I'll I'll link the article in the post. And I realized that, yeah, I probably should consider maybe adjusting the term I used, maybe reframing it. But one of the conversations I had um, was a thread that went on with Will Gallego and John Alspa. They're neither one of them are slouches in the software industry, and so to check, you know what what I was talking about, I invited them to join me on the podcast. So, fellas, if you could both just quickly introduce yourself, and and then we'll have a conversation about resilience engineering.
1: So, my name is Will DeLego. Uh, I've been in the software industry in some context for about twenty years now, professionally a little bit under that. Uh, I've been at small startups. I've been at Fairly uh, big sized companies. Um, I worked with John at Etsy for a couple of years, and I did a stint at Fastly, and now I'm currently at a stealth startup called Jelly, where we're doing some incident analysis.
2: My name is John Alspaugh. Um I've I've been in the uh, industry for a long time. I did I worked with Will um, at Etsy, where I was CTO for a number of years. I um, I've, for the better or the worse contributed to a uh, a number of books and ideas, I think uh, early in the DevOps movement, I will be uh, responsible for some of it, not all of it. Um, and uh, and, and uh, it, I've been doing for the past three years, uh, some, some work um, with some colleagues that come from the human factors uh, system safety world um, and the resilience engineering community, um, but bringing and bridging some of those concepts into the world of software.
0: Before we jump into it, I think it's appropriate for me to give the context of the article. Well, the original catalyst came from an event that happened in July, I want to say. The event was the result of a chaos engineering vendor. I, I won't use their name. And it was all about resilience. And it was a fantastic event. Um, I enjoyed all the sessions, put, put together very well. Since, I've, since then, I've become pretty burnt out of virtual events, but uh, I, I rather enjoyed that one. And and I'd say a good two-thirds of the talks were, were around the concept of resilience. So that was probably where the idea sparked. Then I went on a journey to explore, okay, what does this mean in software? And so as a part of this podcast, uh, it showed up Four different times um, when I played the terminology game. That's where I give terms at the end of the podcast and I get the impressions of the person that I was speaking to. And then internal conversations and some external conversations with customers. And so that was the catalyst of the article. And then I put together the experience of that. Um, Also, interestingly, from the area of SecOps and incident response and security as well when um, we had the conversation online and i reviewed your videos and some of the material where i realized the three areas where i feel like i fell short were number one suggesting a specific model i understand that giving a very specific model on how you ought to do resilience engineering was was a mistake i would call it more best practices second is neglecting the human element. So also being part of prescriptive, it kind of neglected the the importance of the human and how the human plays into resilience. And then third, I think is the term using the term engineering. Because when I use the term engineering, it seems to be describing a role, a function within an organization. So that was the catalyst. Now please, you know, who whoever wants to start, you know, let's let's get a footing on what the definition of resilience engineering is.
2: I think it may be at its simplest level one of the ways um, that you could think of resilience engineering is that it's a field. It's 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 over twenty years old. It has, it has um, origins in a bunch of other fields, which makes it uh, multidisciplinary. The term itself came from a very small number of, um, of people who work, uh, come from high consequence, high high tempo domains and studying how um, complex systems work. Um, Dr. Richard Cook, Dr. David Woods, Sydney Decker, Bob Reithall, um, list, goes, list goes on. Uh, what occurred to Woods and others in the wake of a number of um, at the time look uh, they, they were actually low profile compared to Columbia and Challenger um, NASA events and the 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 understanding of what makes these hazardous domains as safe as they actually are, right the notion that on paper these things these 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 work uh, environments ought to produce way more accidents than they than 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 they actually do and so this notion of resilience, you know, began to be a focus for um, other fields. Um, so the, so resilience engineering, um, that, that actual term is the domain, the discipline, the community surrounding that discipline. But software, the world of software has only in the last handful of years come to look at uh, this topic, you know, a, in, a in a real focused way. Uh, that came out of looking at aviation and uh, power management and um, transportation, uh, medicine. And yeah, so, I mean, again, just think of it as, it's, it's not a thing that came from uh, software. It came from the careful and and scientific influenced look at, Something that goes beyond preventative design, and this is the significant concept behind resilience, which is that it cannot be the attempt to handle loss of components or subsystems by use of redundancy and fault tolerance techniques. If you, that's called robustness in the in, sort of in the terminology. If you wanted want to say fault tolerance or high availability, didn't say those things. Resilience is the uh investment and sustained investment being able to adapt to scenarios that cannot be anticipated and cannot be imagined resilience is reserved for the unforeseen and putting in multiple data centers is a thing that is foresee you you, you are anticipating there's nothing wrong with it it's just not resilience from the resilience engineering standpoint.
0: Mm-hmm. So, in, and obviously we're, we're kind of all software folks here. Does that 20 year old history of the term resilience engineering bleed smoothly into software?
1: Oh, sure. I would think, I would say vast majority, I'm not sure about everyone, comes to study about safety, human factors. How do we make things better so that next time this happens, we don't trip on our shoelaces? how are we trying to get better at understanding when things go wrong? It's usually from postmortems or retrospectives or whatever you want to call them. And that's how, you know, I got into the field as well. I, started I just tell people that if you want to learn about resilience engineering, it's really easy. You started at Etsy about 2011, you sit across from John Allspot for about three or four years, directing the same pod, You attend a couple postmortems and after a while it starts to sink in. And so like everyone can do that. No sweat. Everyone in self-interest got that. But, um, starting with the, the the gateway of okay things are going wrong we want to learn what happens what inspired people to make the choices they did during the incident why did we think it was the best thing at the time and how do we learn from that future incidents going forward now for a long time we've been saying blameless post is kind of the appending attribute to postwar. it's not enough to have you know the analysis and how do we look at it how do we make it blameless and i think that's where this intersection into resilience engineering really comes into play where The idea behind blamelessness is that we need to care about the people behind all these incidents. How do we surface ideas so that they are better suited next time this happens? How are we making people's lives better so that they can share that knowledge they don't have the one subject matter expert who's going to solve all the problems and when they go on vacation there's just fires and you have to wait it out. How do we understand that drawing out those ideas that knowledge can be a shared activity and one that is communal in nature. So whenever we talk about resilience engineering, it's got to be more than just how do we make the systems better? Because that's just, as John pointed out, robustness.
0: Yeah, and I think that in my article, I did have an emphasis kind of on that very thing. I I still struggle to kind of see the difference between the two, because one of the... Another thing is I had a conversation with somebody and we were talking about incident response. And when I brought up resilience engineering to her, part of her thought process is is kind of avoiding that fight or flight moment when Mm -hmm. something happens and having a a decision tree or process around navigating that or getting beyond it so that it doesn't consume you.
1: What I will say is that postmortems and retrospectives are usually the gateway to this. But then once you start getting in the field, you kind of realize how deep does the well really go? And you start moving away from only focusing on here's what went wrong. Here's the incident itself. And you start looking at what's our daily activities that are making things better? How are we moving past just the decision-making tree of, okay, here's the incident, I chose this, this, and this. Cool. We just repeat that every time and things will go right because the systems underneath that decision making are going to change and shift underneath us. We can't rely on the same decisions we've done last time to necessarily work in all future events.
2: The reason why we use incidents, why we look closely at incidents, has nothing to do with an ability to improve. Without having an understanding about where people's attention is, it's difficult to understand what leads them to solve problems in a particular way with their colleagues, by the way. Um, and so j- I just wanted, like resilience isn't a thing that you go and you plan for because it's, it's a, it's a thing that help us, helps us um, just around incidents. And again, this is a perspective shift. So I, I really, I, I, I realize I'm asking uh, a lot here. The perspective shift, is that all work is cognitive work, especially in software. There is no technical mechanisms we touch and move and touch and, 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 and manipulate. We respond to incidents based on the stories we have in our mind of what the technical artifacts do, what they're expected to do, how they're expected, how we understand them to behave. We're not even uh, manipulating the things. We're getting information. We're seeking out information um, from dashboards and logs and all of that sort of thing to help us recalibrate, better understand the difference between the mental model we have of the system and the mental model that the system is trying to show us. Resilience can't come from software. It doesn't come from software. And This is the perspective shift. This is the the, the significant sort of hurdle, which is that people are the adaptable element. Only people can adapt and respond to incidents. What is it that makes that that possible? And the the two short answers are expertise, of which there's even more decades of research around decision-making and expertise, and conditions that allow that expertise to be Continually invested in and not you know not satisfied because of you know becoming complacent, the saying that you have oh you just have the sort of the skills there's a significant distance between uh, colloquial maybe everyday understanding of the notion of resilience and where the resilience engineering
0: well the is. heart of my next question i i actually think was coming from that place so the next question was going to be around okay you know we've we've been talking a lot about what happens in prod like things break but how do you get your developers your engineers to build more resilient applications and that again is at the code level or or at least from my perspective was more at the code level than at than at the the individual level or the team level
2: yeah so i'm gonna push on you here a little bit the code can't be resilient because the code can't do something it wasn't programmed to do right the code is going to do exactly how it was designed intentionally right. or not right
0: there is no right? intent in the code
2: itself yeah. exactly exactly resilience is already in place it's identifying where it comes from what is resilience you go into an organization you and you uh you don't know anything about and uh Observe how an incident unfolds. all of the messy details, the red herrings and the the um, the back and forth as it may be this or maybe that there's the hedging of bets the the uh, uh, the negotiation of who has authority to to run this command versus uh, versus somebody else all of that. and stories people will tell you, and if you've worked at this company long enough, they might somebody might get around to to pointing out, oh. Well, of course, when this sort of thing happens, everybody knows you call Sylvia. Sylvia has esoteric knowledge. Most importantly, other people, and a large number of people, understand that Sylvia has this expertise. It's the ability for those people, not only to bring to mind that Sylvia can help out, but also be able to set up conditions where Sylvia can help. The resilience is in people's ability to adapt but it is the people that resolve the outage. It's not the software.
0: If the team isn't operating at their best or they don't have the guidance on what being resilient is, then what they produce isn't gonna be resilient. Mm -hmm. Can you hire, like, should this be a part of your hiring process?
1: You said we can't perform where we need to when we're not at our best. I might counter and say we're never at our best. And that's a hard thing to swallow. It also might be a little bit glib. It's like, yeah, you know, maybe 2020 is a rough year, <laughs> but we're never optimal. First off we're people. How do you even measure what optimal is? Is it the lines of code you write a day? Is the, you know, negative number of incidents you cause, quote unquote, is it how much we're communicating? If I write one line of code, one perfect line of code that day, is that better than writing 100 code, lines of code the next day? There's no gauging that. But beyond that, we're also human in that we've got external factors that are constantly in different ways. What are our needs every day? What do we bring into the office? What are we taking out of the office? What kind of interactions are we having with other people? And so I would even say that resilience is how do we cope with those challenges every day? How are we overcoming them to make what needs to get done happen?
2: I, I want to add to something that Will just said, and the framing that you have there, Chris. I think, I think there there might be a something in the stance you said was well. Then if that's the truth, then it begs the question about well, resilience isn't a thing that you say. I'm going to focus on resilience now. Okay, you are resilient in the way that given the opportunity for you to break the site, what we could ask is, what is it that goes into you know, breaking the site not happening? This is the dilemma with resilience, which is why it makes it a worthwhile uh, focus of attention. We don't look, if you think about incidents and frequency of incidents and severity of incidents, oh, and, and, and having an incident is bad and blah, 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 blah. You'll note the denominator is missing. I was like, oh, we had three incidents this you know, this month or this week, right? The question, if you'd said, okay, uh, out of how many possible incidents, what would right. be the answer? So you don't, so there, there's not a situation, try to think of resilience not as, not as the normative behavior. It's not a set of skills that you can learn. It's not a set of innate behaviors where you can hire for it or not hire for it. It's an activity. Uh, and it's not an activity that, is, that has this sort of normative, it's good or it's not. And so instead of thinking about resilience as let's try to find the thing that's broken, in, in the case that you're saying, you say, ah, maybe there's something suboptimal. Maybe it's hiring. Oh, wait. No, maybe it's not. Maybe it's, um, maybe it's training once they're hired. That's a different frame for a different focus. But it doesn't have anything to do with resilience. We first have to identify again unforeseen. What a, a good analogy is? Um, how can you prepare for being surprised? And so there's a bit of a uh, there's a bit of a dilemma linguistically. There there's a uh, a concept it comes from actually uh, the very first book on uh, resilience engineering uh, concepts and precepts book. The distinction between a situational surprise and a fundamental surprise, and a colleague of ours described it this way: a situational surprise is where the potential for a scenario to emerge that can be anti- that that can be anticipated but wasn't, um, you could say, is a uh, situational surprise. A fundamental surprise would be something where the uh, the the space the the space of potential or possibilities couldn't have been couldn't have been anticipated, forget about it showing up. He said it this way, when I buy a lottery ticket and I win the lottery, that's a situational surprise. A fundamental fundamental surprise is when I win the lottery and I didn't buy a lottery ticket. The question is you cannot prepare and or solve for in a do this or do that, uh, like checkbox sort of way. What are the things, uh, um, we'd say chaos engineering as an example, right? Chaos engineering does actually have some, some pretty good, and we're, we're a couple of years now, into finding some pretty defensible parallels between resilience of uh, engineering and chaos engineering. What, we, what, what I might say is the way to think about resilience is that resilience is not a thing that chaos engineering builds as a result of experimentation. An expression of resilience is the continual funding of a chaos engineering team.
0: Yeah, I think that lack of concreteness is—I still really struggle with. <laughs> Me too. Like, it, 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 it could be in language and so forth, but but because what I was going to okay, so how do we measure success was going to be my yeah. my next question. Looking at and, yeah. and and as you said, well, how how could you possibly know? The, because you don't know the world of all the things that could have gone wrong that didn't go wrong.
2: But yet we are the creators of all those things that didn't go wrong, right? Right. So look, um, how, do you measure, how do you measure success? The notion that uh, anticipation and uh, monitoring and learning and responding, those activities, the presence of those activities, especially ah. when you are unable to justify economically those
0: investments. Would that be similar to activities of like measuring test coverage, like reviewing mm, it, code quality?
2: Think about why you would want to measure it. You want to know if you're getting worse or better. Okay. Just say worse or better. Resilience comes from multiple different places. And we're in 20 years on, we're. We're really close to understanding um, how to identify it in the wild. Let's take code review for a second, right? Code review is performed at a lot of companies, and it's not an insignificant amount of time that engineers spend on doing that, right? right. How often do we put a dollar value on how much time that is? I don't know an organization that, right. so think about it for a second. Here's a significant portion. I'm not even gonna say it's the majority, but uh, this is real attention. You want people to pay attention and real energy goes into code review. Now, if I ask for a code review from three or four different people, and it's a bit, maybe so this is a bit of a tricky one. That's why I wanna have so many eyeballs on it. And they spend some time there. There's a a decent chunk out of each of their days, out of each of their salary, that they're gonna spend on this. And if their response in the end is it looks good to me and then we go ahead and deploy it and lo and behold it works out there's no issues was that wasted time was that wasted money you
0: don't really yeah you don't actually know but it's a standard practice
2: yeah interesting interesting and wouldn't it be great if resilience and understanding resilience couldn't be known but looking at and identifying resilience was understood as a common practice.
0: Will, I'll I'll ask you because, you know, where does, like, I've been working a lot in the area of pipeline analytics. And one of the metrics that we have in pipeline analytics is unplanned work. Um, One of the metrics or one of the concepts I've been really fascinated with is context switching, because that's something very difficult for me. So part of my job is to write a lot of blog content. I can't write blog content if I'm in any sort of environment where I'm going to get in, interrupted. Can those be measured? Or is it kind of, as John said, the fact that you you are measuring, it's not the, the measurement of unplanned work, it's the fact that you're measuring unplanned work.
1: So I, I liken it to this. I'm, this is another part where I like to dig into, because I don't know the answer to this, and one fascinates me, and two, it feels like a good place to dig into more. How do we... Understand how we're teaching and learning from Forget got instance for a second just day-to-day work Company says here. I'm gonna give you a budget of a thousand dollars. Go buy all the books take all the online courses you want Right figure out how you're gonna give me an amount of learning from that dollar amount And so when you talk about context switching same idea, where do these ideas come from? How do we surface these ideas and how do we understand how we can make that repeatable that's very difficult for me to understand. And yet I really want to because gaining those insights, knowing when that's it, that's what fixed the site. That's how I know I'm gonna write this piece of code or this blog post or this perfect email I'm gonna send out to my team. We don't know how we do that. We're trying to gauge that. We're we're reaching out into different areas. One of your tools for that is, I'm gonna have this let's say cone of silence if I can put it. Uh, my, you know, um, understanding on what you're trying to do here. When you write a blog post, you're going to sit down and you don't want any distractions because you need to focus. And I deeply appreciate that because the idea is that distractions are going to have some kind of detriment into what my work is. But you can sit down, you can have the absolute perfect scenario for writing a blog post. And yet, it's just not coming for you. It's just, I, I can't quite get it. And then middle of the night or maybe in a shower, I have it. You know, it pops in your head and you know exactly what to write. Even if you don't know the exact words, There's just, there's something in the back of your brain that tickles It says, this feels like something to hold on to. And when we're coming into, swing it back to resilience engineering, how do we make those same insights into what our day-to-day work is so that we keep doing what we need to do? It's really hard. I don't know of any direct way to measure that. And I would be very skeptical of anyone saying, we know exactly how to create insights, create team needs to get the exact answers to go yeah. Here's the formula for that. And I struggle with this just
0: in business in general. Well, I'll give you an example in the world of content. So if we put our mm-hmm. marketing hats on and you're producing content and as all, both of you know, developers don't want to be sold. They, they want, they want to be educated, right? They respond to content that adds value to them. Even if they don't agree, dis- even if they disagree with it, by virtue of disagreeing with it, they're improving their understanding of X. So that's where the idea, you know, that's where we see a lot of really high value technical content out there in conversations and, and, and so forth. When you take that idea. So if I were to take that idea and said, Hey, you need to invest in this type of engagement with the, the practitioners and developers, because you're not there to give them anything fluffy, you're not there to educate them on tech, you're there to kind of you know, take them through the journey, the immediate next response is gonna be, how do we measure that? And for the longest time, I have been talking about this measurement called share of conversation. So it's, you look at, in a particular conversation, let's say it's resilience engineering, how often do, I or we show up in that conversation as an attempt to try to measure it. What's frustrating to me is I intuitively know how valuable that is. I know how valuable practitioner focused content is to the business. But if I can't make that fit in existing paradigm for budgets around campaigns and how you push content out to the market, it's not going to go anywhere. Like it's not going to get any backing. It seems like a similar challenge.
2: Yes, uh, again, I would think about what your what the goal of measurement measurement is. Um, if measuring something to uh, attract and maintain um, budget attention, um, that's 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 one thing. Uh, to understand how efficient or effective a particular type of Work or particular way of working is that all that's that's reasonable, but again, like if all you have is a yardstick, metaphorically, right? This and and what you go along. There are a lot of things that are very expensive. Some of the most expensive things in software, uh, certainly in tech companies, aren't at all given scrutiny when it comes to quantification. Speaking of marketing. As far as I can tell, one of the most uh, expensive things you can do as a successful company is do brand redesign. They're ex- they're super expensive. Tell me what? How, how does the ROI calculation? What is brand marketing? What's the ROI in brand marketing? Um, and it just it's just that that it it's that at least people who are familiar with brand marketing don't waste any time. Messing around with trying to get justifications on show me how many dollars we got back by redesigning our logo or changing the typeface or you know doing this different sort of strategy. Back to what you were saying about uh, there is actually something. It's not measurement, but there, I think there is something about this notion of or at least what you called planned work or unplanned work. And it's been said. Uh, so I didn't write the line. Planned work comes from experience, and experience comes from unplanned work. If a context switch provides an opportunity for you to know a thing that you didn't know before, all of a sudden that context switch seems really valuable. Not all context switches are created equal. The place that you're in when you have to do a context switch isn't the same from from moment to moment. The distance Between what you're doing and what you have to switch to, isn't is highly variable as well. Um, It'd be one thing if all context switches means I'm writing hello world to I'm mixing paint, right? Or you know fixing a doorknob, right? And there's like a significant sort of distance there. Yeah. Again, a lot of these topics are around problem solving, detecting problems, uh, assessing what the problem presents to us and whether or not we need to even pay attention to it. Uh, understanding this uh, at, a, at, a, at, a, at a cognitive work level is is a, is a huge part of what resilience engineering is about.
0: I mean, obviously, both of you have this deep understanding of of the need and the fact that this, this is a thing. How and who in an organization would take this on? I, earlier in the intro, I said, I feel like the fact that I used engineering in my post and I didn't just focus on maybe just the concept of building for resilience or, or something that I guess is more tactical, but not resilience engineering. It, it, it almost implies that it's a role or do you think it's going to be a role? Is it, you know, who, whose job is it to, to take this on?
2: Yeah, it's everyone's everyone's to do which part. I'm actually curious what you're talking about.
0: Well, I guess, I guess stewardship in a way like. Stewardship of what? Well, unless you have a critical mass of people in, within the engineering organization understanding the importance of this, then I, I just don't see how you're going to get any resources or energy
2: behind you, it. So behind what? Behind what activity?
0: Resilience engineering.
2: And what is that again? So there's understanding resilience in a rich, in, rich enough way to amplify and enhance the resilience that's already, in, that's already there. That's the issue. Resilience is already happening. It's already happening. What you see, what, what, what the, the expression of that resilience is, uh, come, comes from a bunch of different places, but we tend not to, again, this is the absence of incidents. It's it it we don't recognize people just say oh that's not resilience that's just regular work yeah exactly and so uh, now if you were to ask uh, what would be a role so in aviation if I were to paint with broad strokes where identifying resilience comes from is largely comes from world domain practitioners that otherwise you know, 10 years ago would have been called human factors, the people who design cockpits, the people who design uh, air traffic control um, displays and tooling and that sort of thing. So much in the same way, um, MedStar is a great example. It's a uh, a conglomerate of hospitals and clinics around the DC area. MedStar has a group of researchers that is focused on Human factors uh, understanding, and they'll go into surgical trauma units and and study how work gets done. And uh, a a good amount of progress from a scientific standpoint will come from doing that work. So in some cases, externally via consultants and all that sort of thing. The thing that's exciting for me is the notion of a researcher practitioner. A researcher practitioner is a thing. It is it is an outdated model of these are practitioners and these are academics. You can go back to watching your Betamax movie, right? Uh, And that's what's exciting because in software, role delineation is a lot blurrier, especially in successful startup world than other domains. Right? They're a bit more rigid in other older domains. And I mean, I have, I've got my degree in, in uh, human factors and system safety. There are a handful of people in the industry in software, at least a couple of which were the original uh, chaos engineering team <laughs> are doing their degrees. Um, but there are also people who are not getting a degree but are doing the work. Ty Wood is a great example of somebody who's been writing what he's learning for a, um, a newsletter called Resilience Roundup. Um, Lauren Hochstein from, from Netflix uh, has been writing quite a bit. You know, Seeing through the eyes of some of these concepts through this growing, pretty quickly growing community in software is exciting because it doesn't, it doesn't look like that. That's a thing that we have over these other sort of uh, more established domains.
0: Will, what are you most
1: excited
2: about in the area of resilience? I want people to start thinking
1: about the good they do every day. That sounds like a really succinct, like trite comment, but I mean it in the sense of not just I'm gonna go there and give my best. It's realizing that every day we are making the internet work. And it's not just about how we're preventing things going wrong. We're starting to evolve within software engineering from this these big steps of just like figuring out Here's what blew up. We're gonna fix it. We're gonna move on. It's like no, no, no. no. Hold on to that. Don't feel bad about that. Sure, that's the blameless stuff. But also, what are you doing today? What are you doing tomorrow? What are the you, What are the things you keep doing that is making everything happen? And I think once we start really pushing on that, it's going to allow us to really figure out that it's not just about. I'm going to hit the deploy button and hope nothing breaks. It's, I'm going to push the deploy button and I'm going to make things better. I like that. I like ending
0: on the positive. The positive <laughs> I mean, I can't say that I'm, you know, the the part of me who's like, give me a checklist and then tell me when I've done a good job. You know, yeah. that that part of me, I I can't shut that part up. But, you know, having a deeper understanding of... First of all, what you said at the very beginning, which is a paradigm shift, it's not your code. You're not making your code more resilient because the code is going to be whatever you output the code to be, and it's going to do whatever its job is. That code still has to come from some process internally that produces that code. And you're making decisions, whether you know it or not, to make that code resilient. And it's kind of creating the exercises, the practices, the ether, the, you know, whatever that allows that to be better, and it's an exercise that you're doing always.
1: Yeah, it's exhausting and rewarding at the same time. And not every day you're going to strike gold, but you know when you do, it feels like you know the sky opens and things are, are getting a little bit better. When you look
0: at engineering teams and organizations, Etsy, Twitter,
1: Google, wherever it is,
0: and if you were to get them all in a room and be like, okay, you know, you 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 maybe you take two completely disparate engineering teams where clearly one team is performing so-so, they're doing their job. And then another team is just super high performing. I don't think you could go to any of those engineering managers and say, did you hire the right people? I think they all believe that they hired good talent. I don't think they are like, no, we chose to get the mediocre engineers. I don't think anybody's going to say that. So what makes them different? Why is one more high performing than the other? And so that, that in a way is a metric because it, but it's, it, it, just happens naturally. Like clearly there are better high performing engineering teams than other engineering teams. It's, yeah.
2: it's obvious. Yeah. Can you set up conditions where a, uh, a team that has a lot of a high potential to be high performing or whatever that means? Um, can you set up conditions where it's difficult for them to be high performing. You can set up conditions where it makes it, where it, makes it hard for them to perform high. Then you can also set up conditions that enable them to do high performing work.
0: Yeah, and as Will said, one of the ones that that has kind of come become um, commonplace is is this idea of blameless. So that is somewhat of a start. Uh, just to
2: just to just to make sure that it's super connected the 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 concept of blameless postmortems i coined it if you if you read that original article all of the people i mention are founders of a discipline that's now known as resilience engineering
0: mike dropped (laughs) (laughs) well john and will thank you like i said you know everybody needs to be checked with the terminology that they're using I have this battle now in the world of observability and AI ops. We didn't talk about how observability lines with this, but um, it's important that the terms we use were very deliberate. And, you know, we, we are all a part of a bubble of kind of in the know, and we need that bubble to grow.
2: Thanks a lot, Chris, for being uh, open to talking about this. And Will, I think we got Chris to think a bit in some <laughs> directions uh, that yeah, it seems did. like this might have been for productive. Sure. That is, yes. Chris, there's, there's no getting out now. <laughs>